Namaste and good evening to all of you. I continue tonight with the presentation of the great subject of Shambhala. We have already gone through three lectures on this subject, three satsangs. Um, I have done this uh, subject several times in the last 10-15 years. <coughs> and I, I have decided that this year... I shall do it in a leisurely way, in an extended way, because every time there appears this frustration that I'm trying to cover quickly such a subject in one or maximum two lectures, and a lot of things are not being said clearly. I hope that all these satsangs are getting uploaded sooner or later, and that you can listen to them, you can watch them, and get the information, especially I'm saying this for those of you who just came to these satsangs and you are dropping in the middle of a subject. I'll just try to give a five-minute, five <coughs> do something about it, and something can happen in your life about this. So um, it's very thrilling in a way, because if I say... You know, the yogis speak about the fact that there are seven levels of energy and the seventh level corresponds <clears throat> to the seventh chakra and the seventh chakra corresponds to a reality that we are calling consciousness, which is even beyond the mind. And this consciousness is a universal consciousness, which is like a universal energy, which is like the mother and the source of all the energies and it is something which is omnipresent, it's like an ocean of consciousness. And the yogis say, therefore, that the human being has a consciousness related to their crown chakra, and that the universe has a consciousness which is here now. It's, it's simply omnipresent. People will say, yeah, that sounds like God, right? It sounds like you are talking about a cosmic consciousness, and this cosmic consciousness could be called God, and you are saying that God is everywhere, that God is omnipresent, God is omniscient and omnipotent, and God is here and now. Like, 30% of the world population is made of atheists, or maybe more, maybe slightly less. So it's like, what does this demonstrate? Sure, we understand that the yogis claim this. And eminent yogis like Ramakrishna or Yogananda or Shivananda, they spoke about the fact that in yoga, people think or do something about a consciousness, that if you open your crown chakra, you are in contact with some level of consciousness. When am I going to have a demonstration of this? Like 100% me to know. Pretty much never, except if you become like Buddha. If you reach Nirvana and you are a full-blown Buddha, then maybe. Sometimes there are doubts that even the people that are at a full state of enlightenment, still because of the human nature, because of living in a physical body with a brain which is made of flesh and blood, they have an intuition, they kind of know but it's not like a scientific, mathematical demonstration. It's more like an intimate conviction. It's like, I believe in it, and I can die for it. You know, I stand for this 
but can you demonstrate it like, no, not really. But it's something which for me is 110% true. So when we're talking about the statement of a universal consciousness, it's like, sure, we know that some people are very convinced of that. If those people are truly healthy in their heads, or if they are a brand of mental disorder, it's still to be ascribed, it's still to be decided. With Shambhala, we are talking about something much more down to earth. Like Shambhala logically seems to be the truth, the reality, and if there are any demonstrations, any connections, it's like, wow, wow. That's why the subject of Shambhala is very controversial and very provocative. So, as I said, in five minutes, like, what is Shambhala? Shambhala designates the name of a world which is invisible, a place which is not physical, but in the subtle universes, and where the soul of all the Buddhas and saints from the past is gone. Like, according to spirituality, the mystics, the spiritual people of the past, they still exist. And you can talk to Swami Shivananda now, like a prayer or something, and Swami Shivananda listens. He will hear you if you speak with him right now. And so where is this Swami Shivananda who can listen to me? In Shambhala. And so are 150,000 other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who lived in the history of this earth in the last 20,000 years, or whatever you want to put there. So... Shambhala is a location, is a place, not physical. And in Shambhala, they are enlightened beings, and they have great powers. And the location of Shambhala is not physical, but some of these very powerful people from Shambhala, they can create an opening, a crossover between the worlds. And therefore, Shambhala always has a gateway, a door, an outpost, somewhere on the planet Earth, usually very, very secluded, very, very secret. Of course, in the 20th century, that becomes almost impossible because you can go almost anywhere with an airplane and observe with satellites and so on. And Shambhala is very secretive and works by the laws of non-intervention, exactly as God doesn't need to show itself to you. Shambhala doesn't need to show itself to you, doesn't have anything to demonstrate, but is in charge. Shambhala is made of 100,000 enlightened beings which are ruled by the king of the world called Brahmatma and his two deputies called Mahatma and Mahanga and a council of nine sages. And... Shambhala Shambhala appears as an archetype because Shambhala is the spiritual center of this planet. Then every center of every religion, of every spirituality, either it's Mount Kailash or it's Rome or Jerusalem or something, is just a copycat of Shambhala. It's a sort of an archetypal copy of Shambhala. Shambhala is intimately related with the idea of the pole and 
very provocative symbol which is without intent. It's older than the recent history. The symbol most used for Shambhala, besides the Yantra of Shambhala, which I saw that uh, Bianca was vehiculating, uh, just put one in front of the Shiva statue or something so that people can see it because we don't have a big Yantra for it. So put it vertically, please, because it matters. What you see there is a Yantra which exists in Ganesha Hall, and this is the seal of Shambhala, which Tibetan lamas witnessed that they had seen in some of the secret monasteries of Tibet, where Shambhala had secret libraries coming from either extraterrestrial civilizations or previous human civilizations. And we'll talk more about that Shambhala, I'm sorry, the Tibetan culture has a treasure trove of witnesses concerning Shambhala. And the other symbol, if you don't resort to this, is the swastika. And it's the counterclockwise swastika, the Yang system swastika, which in Japan, in, in Buddhism in general, and especially in Tibetan Buddhism, as well as in India, it was used extensively and without any connection with Nazism or political movements or racism or anything like this. So it's a very, very unfortunate thing that even a sacred symbol like the swastika, which used to be a symbol related to Shambhala, has been misused by some politicians, political and warmongers, and today it came, like, if you see a swastika, you say, like, oh, yucks, I should have, no, there's nothing wrong with the swastika, it's a very, very sacred symbol, and uh, funnily enough, it was used by Shambhala. And the activities of Shambhala are specially about initiation and spirituality on this planet, and it deals with national souls, not so much with individuals, and uh, then we are getting, therefore, to... So where is Shambhala? You know, like asking again. So it's not a physical place, but it has a gate, and that gate can move. And if you remember, we said it was in Hyperborea, in the far north, in Atlantis, in the, somewhere in the Black Sea area of today, and finally in the area of Gobi, north of Tibet, somewhere between Mongolia, Tibet, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, whatever is there, Turkmenistan in these Russian republics, and Afghanistan. Somewhere in the area surrounded by all those, there is a very deserted area, which today technically belongs to China, and the last location of the outpost was there. So we remain here. We simply said that this gate is moving, and basically Shambhala is doing in such a way that nobody who is not part of Shambhala cannot find it. It's subtle enough so that people will not find it. And what is therefore in Shambhala, what has been mentioned by different seers and people who have visited Shambhala or who had been in contact with people who came from Shambhala. So the first class, the first category of thing which is in Shambhala is the great initiates. People from all the religions, all the great saints and mystics, these arhats, mahatmas, saints, whatever you call them, they are most of the time in meditation and in spiritual activity. They are beings of light, beings of compassion, that act for the well-being of this planet, and their activity is an activity of a spiritual order. Their initiation can extend to a lot of things, including the fact that they could be guiding you telepathically, even if you don't know. For example, if in your previous life you have been devoted to Shambhala, now Shambhala is paying back 
by the fact that it takes care of you. Not in a public way. You don't know that Shambhala takes care of you. But one day you may rediscover this truth and to get back in union with Shambhala. Servants of the initiates. Here I mentioned about the mystery of the gypsies. A French lady told me that she found a book about the gypsies and it was not called Le Mystère de Bohemien. It was something like Le Mystère or Le Secret de Gitan in French. So there are books written by initiates about how the gypsies, for example, were once upon a time related to Shambhala and then they did wrong things and they were chased out of Shambhala. Uh, Lopsang Rampa and others like him, they claim that in Shambhala there exist preserved technical marvels from previous civilizations and laboratories that we are not the first technological civilization on earth and that many civilizations before us like Atlantis and something like this, they disappeared because of major cataclysms and uh, Shambhala still preserves artifacts and things from those. So if ever Shambhala decides to regenerate something on earth, they have even physical resources for that. Uh, libraries, for example, as I said, in Tibet there existed sealed libraries belonging to Shambhala. One of them was under the Potala palace of the Dalai Lama, and that one fell in the hands of the Chinese when they took over Tibet. The others were not found, and those libraries had this seal on the door. Like there was a library where they had the Kanjur, the Tanjur, all this Tibetan stuff. And then there was a room which was inaccessible even to the monks in the library, <coughs> in the monastery. And on that door there was a seal across the door and there was this sign. And this sign told to everybody, don't trespass. This is entrusted with confidence to your monastery. But it's literature belonging to Shambhala, which even you in the monastery are not entitled to see or to research at this time. Uh, it could continue <coughs> a lot, but I don't have time to go in this because I would go into the Tibetan culture to tell you how many weird things the Tibetans were having because of this one and uh, that even today when Tibetan Buddhism is famous and the Dalai Lama is an honorary citizen of Canada and stuff like this, still a lot of the, even of the classical Tibetan Buddhist stuff is unknown and uh, unexplored, and it's very, very, very shocking, most of it. So, also, Shambhala seems to be related with the theory of the hollow earth and the subterranean net of tunnels. It is mentioned that the Tibetans knew a lot of this. There is a French guy, if I remember, he's the one who wrote it. I'm not 100%, but I'm 95%. I think he was called Robert Charou. Robert Charou wrote in France a book which is called Trésor du Monde, Trésor de France, Treasures of the World and of France, where he lists approximately 50 lost treasures which people are still seeking for today, such as some sunken Spanish galleons full of gold, which we, they didn't find, and if somebody would find them, they would find hundreds of tons of gold suddenly, and uh, the famous treasure of the Templars, which is supposed to be hidden somewhere in France or wherever, and stuff like this. So the book is a book of mystery. It's a book for researchers, and, for a, and it's not a space cake book. It's a book which speaks about lost treasures, and there are treasure hunters which are hunting. One of those treasures was meanwhile found by some people who invested, I don't know, 
$150 million with a company of investors from United States, and then they found gold worth $1 billion in it, and they got their investment back and they made great profit because they discovered some sunken ship, some Spanish ship full of gold, and they uh, got their investment back. So people are searching for treasures. Well, uh, why do I tell you all this convoluted story? Guess which is the biggest treasure which is mentioned on the list as lost? It's the legendary treasures of the Dalai Lamas. The Tibetans had a very arguable policy in which gold, especially silver to a large, smaller extent, silver was popular, but gold and stones, precious stones, were strictly reserved for the Buddhist religion as a sign of homage. Like, if a woman wants to wear a medallion, it shouldn't be of gold. Only Buddha has the right to gold. If you are a woman that wants to have a jewel, make it of silver. Why? Out of humbleness, out of modesty, saying, I deserve up till silver. Only Buddha deserves gold. Gold is for religion. Gold is only for the divine issues. I will be modest. And, and therefore, in Tibet, all the gold, either which they imported or which they dug from their mines, was strictly reserved and it was under the control of the Buddhist lamas and of the temples. That meant a hell of a lot of gold in time, in the last thousand years. And when the Chinese started conquering Tibet, they realized that this will be one of the first things which will fall a prey. And then the Dalai Lama gave the order to be moved. Okay, the Dalai Lama at that time was 15 years old, 14, 15 years old. So we don't know if he personally gave the order or he just signed for it, or if the regents, the people who are in charge, because he was under age, and therefore he was uh, counseled by adult people into this. Fact is that the administration of Tibet decided out with the gold. There are people who saw it going away. The caravan of donkeys carrying Buddha statues made of gold and others was eventually 70 kilometers long. A caravan of 70 kilometers long. Even if they exaggerate and it was 7 kilometers long, it's still huge. The calculated value of that treasure is somewhere in the hundreds of billions of dollars today. That caravan left from Potala and it never reached anywhere. Neither in the hands of the Chinese nor anywhere. It didn't go to India, it didn't go to Bhutan, it didn't go to Nepal, it didn't reach anywhere and it was not reported as lost. That gold simply disappeared somewhere. It is claimed by Robert Charu that it is in one of the tunnels from Tibet, that the Tibetan, the Himalayas, have lots of tunnels and caves which were known intimately to some of the Tibetan lamas and which are related to Shambhala and that the Tibetans deposited their gold there and that allegedly the present Dalai Lama knows where it is but because it's somewhere in China of today they don't have access to it yet and therefore there is somewhere a huge treasure uh, this way and that way. That's why I say I mentioned this wild story to show that it's a story from 1950. It is not a wild mystical story where you say that Milarepa was flying through the air 
and then the skeptical people will go like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Who can? But it, we are talking about a caravan full of gold and stones, measuring kilometers, who left from Lhasa in the direction of the Himalayas, south, and it never historically reached anywhere. Neither was it reported as stolen or dead or something. Where is it? So, Tibetans themselves claim, the yogis from the Himalayas on the Indian side also claim that Shambhala, besides having an outpost or this, is in touch with something which is under the ground. There are rumors everywhere in every culture, in Europe, in North America, in Asia, that there exist vast networks of tunnels, huge, extensive, which connect even continents with each other under the seas, and which are built by we don't know whom and we don't know when. And that this network is very secretive, and that there exist people who live under the earth. I remember when I was a child, I was reading Henri Gilbert's uh, novel about Robin Hood, the story of Robin Hood and his merry men, and there Robin Hood himself is reported in the 12th century to have talked to these underground people, that there were mounds in England, like ant hills, and there were holes, and you could go in tunnels which are under the ground, and those tunnels were like endless. It was a network of tunnels, and in these networks of tunnels, there lived a simple, simply a different race of people. I could continue with this as much as you want. If you want to Google it to find more about these things, this is designated by the word Agartha. Three weeks ago, I had it written on that board. Now the board has been cleaned for teaching purposes. I'm not going to stand up now and write it. Agartha. A-G-G-A-R-T-H-A. Agartha. Agartha, which is translated usually as the subterranean kingdom, something existing in parallel with the earth civilization, but very secretive again at not known. I remind you that even in the Lord of the Rings and other medieval things, there is a civilization of gnomes which live under the earth and which are excellent at mining and stuff like this. And it was the gnomes that manufactured the Excalibur, the sword of King Arthur. The sword of King Arthur was not made by man. It was made by the dwarves, by the gnomes living under the earth. So there is a lot of historical stuff in many continents about this. I'm not going there, but I'm going to the fact that in the Asian traditions, there also exists this tradition that there exists an underground civilization. And that the theory of that underground civilization goes as far as the famous theory of the hollow earth. These are highly impossible to prove things for a variety of reasons. I remember that 10 years ago, some desperate people from United States, they were asking from whoever wants to join to put down $25,000 and they were going to rent a Russian icebreaker and go to the latitude and longitude where the hole is supposed to be, somewhere close to the North Pole, but a bit skewed, and so on. Like really to organize an expedition with 200 people going to the hollow earth. Just to demo, either we paid $25,000 and all we got was a polar expedition, and we found nothing, 
or we actually went and had the surprise of all surprises. Uh, obviously, as it goes, they didn't manage to organize this gigantic thing. So there are lots of theories. Just Google hollow earth and you are going to have your fillings fall out of your teeth with surprise of what you'll find there. It is not, I am incapable to give you a demonstration at the level of engineering and reason as I like that the demonstrations should be. Not space cake, far out things, like things which you can put your finger on it and say this is history. You go in a museum, a museum and it's there. I can't give you such a thing, but I'm simply letting you know that related with all the stories about Shambhala, there is the theory that a part of Shambhala is related, connected to this hollow earth or Agartha subterranean kingdom. And that's why a lot of the tricks which Shambhala is doing, it's because it has access to a network of tunnels under the earth and it is connected with an underground civilization which is vastly unknown today. It's up to you to find out if this is just another conspiracy theory and pure madness, or if it has any substance to it. But uh, Shambhala is supposed to be connected with this. Even the great clairvoyant Edgar Cayce, the so-called sleeping prophet, an American clairvoyant, from the early 20th century. He claimed he saw such things, although he didn't know about Shambhala, he didn't know about Tibet, he didn't know about a lot of things. But he claimed that there are such tunnels even under the Sphinx of Egypt, and that one day they will be discovered accidentally, and that people will have a big surprise, because in some of those tunnels there exist technical artifacts from Atlantis, and people are going to be shocked because there will be some demonstration of the fact that we are not alone, that we are not the first that live on the, not the first people who build airplanes and computers and this, but that there were other things before. Anyway, um, this is just a sort of a record of what is in Shambhala. The initiates, the people that do the administration and this, plus laboratories, technical stories, underground tunnels, libraries, all sorts of scientific and other kind of knowledge, <coughs> which is preserved simply for the sake of safekeeping for the future. Because, allegedly, for those of you who understand the theories of Indian and Tibetan theories of history, the human history is made of epochs which are more free and relaxed, called one of them called Satya Yuga, the Golden Age, and epochs or ages, which are very closed and very ignorant and very selfish and very violent, like the one in which we live, which is called Kali Yuga. And generally, when Satya Yuga is coming again, Satya Yuga is like spring. You say, like, when winter will pass, spring will come again. It's nothing exceptional, it's just cycles of nature. So when Satya Yuga comes again, then uh, humanity will be much more open for a few thousand years, and a lot of things will be known. And of course, in 12,000 years or in 20,000 years, they will be forgotten again because humanity is periodically going through ups and downs of knowledge, openness, good karma, bad karma, spirituality, and all those things. So, a few things, other specific features known about Shambhala before we try to look in the fact if there is any historical evidence about these things. Uh, Shambhala, first of all, they don't want to be disturbed. If the masters of the world, they meditate to burn some negative karma, 
let's say, which comes from killing too many animals for eating them. So if the masters from Shambhala meditate, they don't need visitors. They don't have visitation hours by the hippies. That the hippies want to come and say, hi, peace brothers, I like you, Shambhala. You know, and give a, also maybe give a like on Facebook. You know, they don't have a Facebook page and they couldn't care about that. You know, they are, you know, so they want to be discreet, unknown, invisible. Very tough and straight because of very clear tasks and full schedules. Like when Shambhala has something to do, it has something to do. For example, in the Bible, it's not about Shambhala. In the Bible, it's about angels. But in the Bible, there is a similar story with angels, in which angels come and visit Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And as they visit Abraham and make a deal with him, then they seem to have a busy schedule. And Abraham says, where do you go? And it's that famous provocative story in which the angels tell to Abraham that they have to visit the cities of Sodoma and Gomorrah because uh, news came to heaven that the people from Sodom and Gomorrah, they deserve to be trashed and God sent them to check. Of course, you can say, well, can't God just see it with his third eye? We can't explain this. We tell you what the Bible says. So the legend is that the two angels went and visited Sodom and Gomorrah. And guess what? They discovered it was true. And guess what came next? Half an hour later, Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out the face of the earth. That could be Shambhala. Like if Shambhala decides that something has to go, it goes. It's as simple as that. You know, people, I always see Hollywood movies in which nice people, spiritual people, always have lots of qualms about, you know, and you can never do anything tough because the old ladies are going to get heart attacks and the newspapers are going to write about it. Well, Shambhala doesn't have that problem. The Manipura of the people of Shambhala can be huge if need be, and therefore things are happening. Of course, Shambhala does not interfere. But imagine that there is a forester, a ranger of a forest, the what shall we call it, the person in, che, in charge of the forest, of a reservation. And in the reservation, there are different kinds of animals which are discreetly supervised, fed, watched. And then suddenly one of these family of animals has some extremely contagious disease, which risks to contaminate the whole reservation and wipe out everybody. And then the ranger says, those animals have to be quarantined and they have to be put to sleep you would say, oh, the poor wolves or stags or what, will they be put to death? Yes. For the good of the reservation? Yes. And nobody is blinking. Nobody is as much as blinking if one needs to do something a little bit tough about things. So in Shambhala, there is reported from everything, from all the people that had connections with Shambhala, it is reported that they are very luminous and very spiritual and if they need to interfere forcefully, they will. There's no limit to Shambhala that, oh, they will be nice, isn't it? That's just Svadhisthanistic uh, wishful thinking. And below Shambhala, there are people who collaborate with Shambhala, not only living people like us, but also spirits, like people like you who meditate with Shambhala for 30 years, you don't yet make it to Shambhala, 
But when you die, your spirit is still very much connected to Shambhala in the afterlife. And then some master from Shambhala comes to you, picks you, claps you on the shoulder and says, we know that during your life you supported us and you were body and soul with us. So even now when you are dead, you can still be one of us. You can still be... This was called by Alice Bailey and other theosophical authors by the name of the hierarchy. A hierarchy of spirits which are not literally part of Shambhala, but they are with Shambhala. This hierarchy, it has been mentioned just for you to see that these references existed throughout human spiritual history. They were known in the medieval times, in the hermetic traditions and others. They were known by the syntax, by the seal, S-I, two letters, S and I. Like one of the symbols of it is that they would draw in alchemical treatises, they will draw a swan and the neck of the swan is like an S and then there was an arrow through the neck of the swan. And everybody said, what is this symbol of a swan with an arrow in her neck? That symbol is S-I, and S-I meant in Latin superioris ignotes. And for those of you who don't know at all Latin, superioris ignotes mean the unknown superiors. Like superior to the level of mankind, in between Shambhala and mankind, and some people even call them the silent beings. They were a bit like some angels, but they were not angels. They were very powerful human beings, entitled like warranted, given a warrant, and these people also did work for Shambhala, and uh, there are descriptions of people who invoked, who have been in the presence of the superiores ignotes, and they said that they could not spend more than 10 minutes in their presence because they would start to vomit. Like they said that these beings had such a strong manipura, such a strong energy that if they appeared in the room where you are, you felt like you are squashed against the wall, that their energy, their presence, like you got an elephant in a small room, you know, then there is no more space for you. You are squashed against the wall. So there are, there are witnesses of people that have been in presence of it. The SI qualified as very hard and obedient. They're, they are like aspirants to Shambhala. And being aspirants to Shambhala, they are very hard, very obedient. They are like soldiers of Shambhala. And they, be aware of the fact that the motivations and the values of Shambhala are very hard to understand today. Like if it would be possible, Shambhala would make everyone spiritual. If Shambhala, let's take an example, which was tried by the Americans in the 1920s and failed, and they hold it as a sort of a, I'm talking about the prohibition. If Shambhala would come to the conclusion that alcohol is absolutely damaging to the human race, then if Shambhala would be in charge, they would say, starting tomorrow, zero alcohol. Prohibition. Of course, many people say, but uh, a little glass of half glass of wine every day is like, sure, now we start bargaining. If it should be zero, or if it should be a half of a glass, but who can guarantee that half of a glass doesn't become five glasses, and you know, and so on, and all that stuff. So that's why I say, I gave an example which may be arbitrary and impossible to sustain, but I gave an example as this, like what if Buddha and Milarepa and St. George, they decide that there should be no more alcohol. Will you comply? 
Are you ready to say, yes, Shambhala, finally. Finally, somebody some does something ecological, you know. No more alcohol. I'm happy. Let there be no alcohol for the next 5,000 years, except medicinal alcohol for disinfecting wounds, you know. For the rest, let this culture of booze and alcohol fucking disappear forever. I'm happy if I see it disappear. How many of you, I'm not asking for hands, I'm just asking rhetorically, how many of you would subscribe to it, would say yes, if Shambhala said so, I vote for it, I'm 100% for it, and I will serve this policy. That means to be devoted to Shambhala, like to understand when something is spiritual, and to go for it. Because many of the things which happen today, they are compromises. They keep writing that Tobacco produces cancer and can kill you, and they sell it. Like, what's the logic of it? That now they even put ugly photos on the cigarette packages, and they still sell them. Like, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you simply say, why do you sell them? Then stop selling them. They should disappear. Tobacco industry dies today. Boom. Period. Over. In five years, nobody will even remember that there was tobacco on the face of this earth. Wipe it out. Uh, But what about that some people want to be free? And uh, Sure. We can argue like this endlessly about this story. That's why I'm saying maybe Shambhala will not come and forbid tobacco. Although in my opinion they should. But they will not come and do it. But simply because they want to give to people their freedom. And they will not interfere. But their values. What do they think? may be very different than what the journalists from New York Times New York Times or Washington Post think. Like Shambhala is not necessarily politically correct or uh, democratic and so on. It's like it may be very different because they derive their values from a totally different place. In a certain you'll say, well, but then they sound like the Taliban's. It's up to you to make up your mind. Yeah, but then they sound like the Ayatollah of Iran. Maybe the Ayatollah of Iran is closer to Shambhala than you and I. Have you thought about that, that it's possible? Would you hate Shambhala if you discover that that's the case? Ah, if Shambhala is sympathetic to the Muslims from Iran, then suddenly I don't like Shambhala anymore. This is just your ego asking for confirmation. Uh, I think Shambhala is something which is like me. And if not, then suddenly I get pissed off at them and say fucking fundamentalists or something. You know, maybe Shambhala is very fundamentalistic. That's why you have to think ten, ten times before you go with Shambhala because it might be something very different from what you know. If in your heart you are like that, then it's fine. So I also wrote and warned people often that um, today, because of this, there are many attempts to fake or play like Shambhala, precisely because Shambhala itself is very odd, let's say no more than that, you know, because it's very different from the place where the world is today. And then many people try to create a sort of a politically correct, pleasant Shambhala, 
and they say, we are Shambhala, we know. There are all these uh, so-called gurus and so on who speak about ascended masters, hierarchy, especially the theosophical society left in its wake, lots of people talking about these things, and I don't have much time, I would have to hold a whole lecture only about this theme, to give you names, books, statements, show you where these statements are fake and far out, and perhaps it's not worth it, I'm just simply warning you that unfortunately there is a lot of pseudo-information about Shambhala out there nowadays, uh, some of it faked on purpose. For example, Alice Bailey, who together with her husband was in one of the big political conspiracies of the 20th century, and uh, I'll not insist on that as well, you can ask me in the Q&A or simply investigate by yourselves, uh, they claimed that they were in touch with Shambhala and therefore they were in touch with something which they called the Great White Brotherhood. Especially in the theosophical fringes and so on, when you hear things like the Great White Brotherhood, the hierarchy, and things like this, you should immediately raise a question mark and see if it's making sense or not. So, sometimes uh, spirituality can be a bit rough. For example, there were people, there are people, who criticize vehemently the culture of ancient Tibetan culture. Today, the Tibetans are the underdog. The Chinese have conquered them, killed them, massacred them, poor Tibetans, and so on. And therefore, uh, it's, it's very common to be sympathetic to the Tibetans because they have been practically wiped out by the Chinese and all that. But if you are going to read a bit of history written by the Tibetans themselves, you are going to find out that in ancient Tibet, things were not pink and rosy all the time. Not only that Dalai Lama and the priests were a very, very, very precious aristocracy that was living on big, big, big money while the normal people in Tibet were very poor and all that, but there was a lot of mano forte. There was a lot of forceful policy in Tibet. Like, uh, they, although Buddhists seem to be compassionate, they were not compassionate when it came to criminals and to people that threatened the establishment of Tibet. Not only that the Potala Palace and others, they had dungeons and chambers of torture. Yes, under the authority of the Dalai Lamas, people in Lhasa, they were tortured. But actually, when you hear stories, they used almost anything for it. For example, there is the tradition of the guardians of the protective deities, the famous guardians of Dharma, the protectors of Dharma, which are four formidable demonic entities called Lamo, Kala Chakra, and a couple of others whose name I don't remember right now. And this Dharma Palace, these protections of the Dharma, they were summoned by Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, in uh, the 7th century AD. Like, it's a tradition which is 13 centuries old. And what is the Dharmapala, thinks? The Dharmapalas is that they took contact with them, with the Dharmapalas, through the state oracle. This was a man who was taking some special drugs and was going in a state of trance, performing hyperventilation, breathing, and others, and then going in a state of clairvoyance, like a medium, and he was going in contact with the Dharmapalas, and then the Dharmapalas could appear in physical form or do other things, and they made a deal. 
the Dharmapalas were given meals, and they were given food, fed food, like invited to a banquet. We're talking about spirits, yeah? <clears throat> so it's a whole mystical tradition. There are photos made by Nebeski Vojkovic in the 1920s and others. There is even filming of the state oracle doing this. The state oracle did two things, communicated with the Dharmapalas and made predictions from the future by the power of another entity, which was not one of the Dharmapalas. And it was like this. The ritual was like this. The Dharmapalas came and they said uh, that the, the Chinese are conspiring to invade you at the borderline with China, of ancient Tibet with China. There is this guy called Walter, and Walter is planning to do something, is selling you, is selling things from Tibet, and he's uh, giving information. Then, uh, in Lhasa here, you've got a young Marxist journalist, who is not, uh, who is against Buddhism and he is a total atheist and he is writing to international newspapers and this and he is speaking against the Dalai Lama and the High Lamas and he is preaching things which go against Tibetan Buddhism. And then somewhere there is this and, and they outlined the five or ten problems. And then the Lamas gave them back a list and they said, this person has to die, this person has to go in a wheelchair and never move again, this person has to have this, this person had to have that. And the Dharmapalas went and did it. Like the Lamas of Tibet, to defend their beloved Tibet and to preserve the purity of the Tibetan Buddhism, they didn't stand back even from maiming or killing people. They simply said, five people die, Tibet lives. That's what was done. It's, it's historically accurate. It's known. There are books. And there are other stories like this. It's not the only thing which was done. And therefore, if you think that those people were just, uh, that Dalai Lama and his people were just peace brother type of hippies, you are living in a world of Svadistanistic illusion. That's the image which is being sold to the enthusiastic Westerners so that they, you know, they buy it. Hooker hook, line, and sinker, you know, but it's not true. When you search history, you're going to see that things were different. And that's why uh, I'm telling you that um, there are lots of funny things about both the Tibetan culture and Shambhala and others. And uh, I mentioned that there is a lot of adulterated information which is sold like, oh, the great white brotherhood and so on. And a lot of stuff is sold. Uh, from Alice Bailey, just went on and on. I mentioned in one lecture that there is some crazy American author. I think it's this woman with the ascended masters, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, if I remember correctly. I hope I'm not maligning somebody who is innocent with this who tells us about masters from Shambhala, most of them invented. There is a Chinese one, there is a black one, there is a Jewish one. It's like Hollywood movies, you know. It's politically correct. They are representatives of all the ethnic groups and minorities, like the Oriental people or the Jewish people. They say, we also have a master in Shambhala. Great, you know. And uh, all that, you know, which may be bullshit very well. You know, it's just invented. And then some of these functions from Shambhala are absolutely hilarious. If I remember correctly, uh, is that uh, uh, the famous count of Saint-Germain, 
a mystical, a very weird character from around the time of the French Revolution, so who lived around 230 years ago. The famous Count de Saint-Germain was, would be now, is in Shambhala, and he's in charge of the financial circulation on earth, like the stock exchange and everything. Like Saint-Germain is looking, and if the stock exchange goes too much haywire, Saint-Germain concentrates and says stock exchange, stock exchange, stock exchange, back, 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 because some American people might have a heart attack. And Chambala cannot afford that to happen. The American stock exchange is way too important to Chambala to let it fall into small pieces. I'm ironic on purpose, and it's just bullshit, you know, because most Ramakrishna would have destroyed all the, if he had the button by which you told him, Ramakrishna, if you press this red button, all the financial circulation on planet Earth will be interrupted today. Ramakrishna would have pressed it in second number one. No? So if Ramakrishna is in Shambhala, he is not very much friendly with Saint-Germain. Uh, by this... Uh, you know, sponsoring the idea that the French Revolution was somehow sponsored by Shambhala. It's actually the other way around. The French Revolution was one of the most anti-spiritual acts. It can be the father of modern democracy, but it was one of the most anti-spiritual things which happened in the last 300 years of history. And Shambhala hated the French Revolution, didn't like it at all. No, so it's like, but some people present it exactly the other way around, taking advantage of people's lack of information, confusion. We are far, far away in Kali Yuga, and people don't know anything, and it sounds good. It sounds good. And then people say, oh, it's so nice. Saint Germain, oh, the French. It gives a romantic tinge to the French Revolution, like Shambhala was with it. Tough news for those of you who ever believed that. It's quite the other way around. If it was according to Shambhala and if they wanted to interfere but they didn't want, Shambhala would have stopped the French Revolution. But because it was in the karma of the France and in the karma of the planet Earth, they simply shrugged their shoulders and they said they want a French Revolution. Let them have a French Revolution and in 500 years they will have to see the results of that. They will have to eat the fruits of that. So, uh, remember... Uh, such there is a lot of misinformation about Shambhala which actually tells what people want to hear not necessarily the truth but because the truth can be difficult and the truth shall set you free the truth might be difficult to swallow if Jesus is coming today and is telling you two or three truths you might hate Jesus because he is telling you something which is like uh, this guy is too much no, but the point is that Jesus actually is right, either you like him or not in what he says. That's why Jesus, Krishna, Shambhala, whoever you want, they are not necessarily politically correct. And some of their decisions or opinions may seem arguable. I always want to remind you the dictum of Stanislaw Lem, a Polish writer, uh, science fiction writer who wrote also some essays and some uh, smart thoughts and one of his thoughts is legendary I loved it because it said in hell the good guy is the devil because if you go in hell he is the boss there so you cannot say oh I'm in hell and the devil is the worst asshole there because they will come and beat the shit out of you right you are in hell under their power 
So in hell you have to kiss the bottom of the devil because the devil is the boss. So the devil is the good guy. No? That's why when the world is fucked up, the values are fucked up, and suddenly the good guys look like good, like bad, and the bad guys look like good. That's why there are many, many things to be said about this. So in this way, we are getting to the final points here, which are looking a little bit in if there is any historical evidence to substantiate such wild, incredibly wild stories on one hand. And the second thing is, and the second thing is, what can we do practically about it? Like Shambhala seems controversial enough, provocative enough, and many people say, you know what, Swamiji spoke four weeks, maybe five weeks, about this story. It's wild. There is a 10% chance that it could be true. And if it is true, like, what could I do? Like, let's say that I am a person who is interested in these things. Then can the regular Tom, Dick, and a student in a yoga school somewhere on the face of this earth, can such a person get the attention of Shambhala? Is there any way to say, me, 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 you know, look at me, I want to do something? Like, is it possible to meditate, do something which will have any effect? And is it possible that those effects are visible, at least subjectively? Like, I don't know if I can demonstrate it to others, but at least I am interested for myself to do something about this. So even if it's the secret of the secrets of the secrets, but I, for myself, I would like to see if anything is possible. So these are the final two points. Um, when we did Shambhala meditations every Wednesday evening, we had a couple, we kept three, four books. This was one of the essential ones because I mentioned Shambhala Oasis of Light. It's a very rare book. Um, we had such books. Uh, a couple of them from which we selected the reasonable paragraphs because there are some books which have very unreasonable chapters, like Space Cake, written completely absurd, and when you read them, it's like, yeah, right. You know, it's like, it makes you roll your eyes and go like, how stupid do you have to be to believe in that? No, but there are some which are absolutely flabbergasting. This book, about half of it, is flabbergasting in this way. And uh, the teacher who was doing uh, the Shambhala meditations, usually we did them in the Ganesha Hall because that's where we have a Shambhala Yantra. Uh, the people who did, the teachers who did, they spend uh, up till half an hour, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, by reading a chapter or about 5 to 10 pages from literature like this so that people can hear more. No? Like if I would read this book for you, probably in three hours I would read it. I would read everything. So... Of course, I am not going to do that, but I'm simply saying it's possible to get the information rather quick, like it's not a process which will take the next 13 years or something. It's something which will take a reasonable amount of time and which would be very informative. So when we did Shambhala meditations, which somehow we stopped doing three years ago or so, I think the school was having lots of administrative problems and with the administration, with the management and this, and simply we didn't have the manpower, we didn't have the organizatorical powers. If you are going to tell to your teachers to transmit to the teaching department, and if many of you are very hot on this subject, then of course for the rest of this season, 
the Shambhala meditations can come back by public request because, of course, we are very happy to do that. But if we do it and only two people are coming or something, it's not that those two people are import, unimportant, but we have to delegate a teacher and we don't have enough teachers and they are busy. And we have to delegate a teacher to come at 9 o'clock in the evening in the Ganesha Hall, Wednesday evenings or Sunday evenings or something, and to make a shower. If 10 people come, then the management of the school feels it's worth it. If nobody shows up, it's like it's not paid. It's a free community activity, you know. It's a, but still, the management of the school will do it if there is some level of interest and if some people want to practice. If not, then of course I'm going to tell you what we do. But before of this, because I decided that if we'll do this, well, you'll get the readings from the book. And those of you, maybe there are five people in this room who are really, really hot on this subject, then you can take a photocopy of the book and just read it and see for yourselves. So there is no need to extend this too much, this satsang too much. I'm just going to tell you that the history of the earth contains endless evidence. The Greeks called the kingdom of the north, the northern Shambhala, they called it Tula or Hyperborea. Even today there is a city in Greenland which is called Tula simply because of the Greek mythology which said that in Tula or Hyperborea there were the people of Shambhala and so they didn't call it Shambhala because Shambhala is a Sanskrit name. They call it Hyperboreans and all that. There exist lots of traces of it in the folklore, in the fairy tales. When you speak about the white kingdom, the white king, the white emperor, the white island, the white oasis. Then there is in fairy tales mention of the country of the immortals or the country of the eternal youth. There is the land of Luz. There is the famous story which was rewritten in the 20th century about Shangri-La, about paradise lost. Shangri-La is Shambhala, but he didn't want to write Shambhala. He just invented a parallel name and he called it Shangri-La, the famous story of Shangri-La, which today is just a chain of super expensive hotels in Bangkok and elsewhere. Shangri-La means a very quiet place in the Himalaya where nobody can reach and you can have peace. So these are the Shangri-La hotels where you go five-star hotels and you live like uh, in a super... Nobody disturbs you there and you have everything you need. So even, you know, the famous story with Luz and with the country of the immortals. Uh, as I told you, there is, for example, an island in the, in the Black Sea, which is called, it was today, it's called the Island of the Snakes and it is under Ukraine. It belongs to Ukraine, politically speaking. That island a thousand years ago, it was Leuka, Leu, and it was that meant by the Greeks, and it meant the White Island. And on that island, there are the reminiscences of an old temple, which has not been fully explored. I have not seen one single archaeological mission about that. Metaphysicians say that that was one day, many, many, perhaps 20,000 years ago, one of the outposts of Shambhala. So... Um, and that's why it was called the White Island, because this name, White, but for example in Russia, and I'm, uh, I'm anticipating, um, the place of Shambhala, when you went from Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan or whatever those republics are, when you went southeast towards Tibet, that place was called by the Russians Belovodye. 
Belovodia, I'm not pronouncing it as good as a Russian would, but it still means the white waters. There, there are some rivers and lakes there, and they are called the white waters. And Belovodie, there have been monks in the 12th century who were accepted to go and visit Belovodie, and they described something flabbergasting. These are stories from the Orthodox Church, people who are on the fringe of the Christian Church, and they got in contact with Belovodie. So I, will, I would continue, but uh, let me go through it. Pythagoras is supposed to have had connections or even visited Shambhala. Lao Tzu, the famous Lao Tzu, there is no tomb of Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, according to Confucius, his disciple, one day he just went on a bull, riding a bull, and he went riding west. When you ride west from China, northwest from China, you get to Shambhala. So, and Lao Tzu said that he is going to the land of the immortals. He finished his mission on earth, and now he is going to the land of the immortals. So even Lao Tzu, in Christianity, there was a strange para-Christian saint or character called Apollonius. Apollonius of Tiana. Read, Google Apollonius of Tiana and see who he was and what he did. This guy did some absolutely insane stuff, and Apollonius of Tiana went to Shambhala. He got his teaching from Shambhala. Even Pythagoras. You know Pythagoras? There is no tomb of Pythagoras. The story about Pythagoras is that he walked east, saying that he's going to the immortals. From Greece it was east, and he disappeared in a field of green peas. Like, I don't know if you have ever seen green peas. They are about this tall. Nobody can disappear in a field of green peas. You can disappear in a field of corn, if the corn is tall enough, high enough, you can't disappear in a field of green peas. So that's a metaphor because the green peas had a connection with the teachings of Pythagoras. I will let you find out by yourselves what that connection is. And what I'm simply saying here is even Pythagoras is supposed to be in Shambhala. In the Middle Ages, the kings of Europe were given knowledge like Ferdinand Barbarossa, the king of the Roman, of the German, Germanic Holy Empire, the popes of Vatican and other, they, they, are, they are letters in this royal courts, they are letters which they have received from a mysterious character living in the East and which is not identified with anything which happened in the East. We're talking about the 12th century, yeah? So we know the history of the world pretty well in the 12th century. It's nobody that was there because it was a guy who called himself Prester John and made understood, it was half understood between the lines, that he is John the Apostle of Christ. Like John the Apostle of Christ became king of Shambhala at some point in history. And this Prester John, Prester is a very ancient, archaic word of the word priest, like priest John, this prester John or Pope John, which wrote as a Christian king, I just study, take this book and read the letter. These letters are quoted from archives. They exist in archives. And Ferdinand Barbarossa answered, like who was carrying the letters between them? Where did the letters go when he gave to somebody a letter and say, give this to Prester John? Most of these things are not known, but they exist. The, again, it's full of these stories 
and the Pope from Vatican was writing. Even Genghis Khan and his follower, they had this adventure because Genghis Khan, as you may know, he had the fastest growing empire in the history of the world. Genghis Khan and his son and his grandson, they built an empire which was stretching. The Mongols were riding at the gates of Vienna on horseback from Mongolia till Vienna. You know, they conquered the Ottoman Empire. They conquered, they were in Europe already. And of course, the Mongols, they stumbled over Shambhala. And they could not go in there. Genghis Khan, of course, he was a Manipuristic bastard. And he just said, go there and everybody has to pay tribute to me. I am the great Genghis. You know, he was a blokehead. Of course, he could not get inside Shambhala. And his warriors were killed and chased away. No? So that story exists. It's the history of the Mongol Empire in which they tried to bite on Shambhala and they broke their teeth. No? So like, how do you solve stories like this? Because something was there. The, in 1648, the mystics from the West, they mentioned the termination of the Rosicrucian order. Today, there are many people who call themselves Rosicrucians, and you hear about, they are fake. It is a historical known well fact that the Rosicrucian order stopped in 1648. The Rosicrucian order was a mystical alchemical order who lived in parallel with the Christian church in the medieval Europe, and they were practicing mostly alchemy. They were alchemists. And it started with a German baron called von Rosenkreuz. And Rosenkreuz means, in case you don't understand, rose and cross. And this, their symbol was a cross, like they were Christian, but with a rose on it. And from that rose, there come the insignia of the social democrat parties. Today, in all the, all the social democrat left-wing parties, they have a rose. That rose is coming from some Rosicrucian secret societies who are not Rosicrucians anymore. They were political fakes in the 17th, 18th, 19th century who took over it. Why? Because the Rosicrucian society stopped in 1648. Why did they stop? Because they said that the world had gone too deep in Kali Yuga and it was close to the end of Kali Yuga and they could not teach alchemy in a world so corrupted as that. And they wrote a document which was signed by the 12 leaders of the Rosicrucian school by which they announced that hereby today on something of June in 1648, the Rosicrucian society closes its doors for now. And the masters of the Rosicrucian order, they are walking towards the masters of the East. They stop living in the West. So 12 Rosicrucian masters walked. We don't know if they made it. Maybe they were killed by gypsies on the way. But they walked east towards some mysterious place where the masters of the world were and the Rosicrucian society closed. The document exists. The letter is quoted by various authors who wrote about the history of the Rosicrucian order and stuff like this. So even the Rosicrucians mentioned this. I Let's see where is... Okay. Here is the continuation, the last elements. In Russia, they called it Belovodie, the white waters, and it's just enough for you to Google Belovodie or to see in this book there is a whole chapter on the witnesses from the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian culture 
of how people in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, they had a mysterious, they knew they can't go there, but when they were allowed, they could, some of them could exceptionally go to Belovodie and all that. There is the famous story about the geographic expeditions in Tibet, which I mentioned. Some British geographic explorers, they tried to walk in that area, although the locals warned them, we can't go there. And then they were confronted with weather conditions so strange and scary that everybody ran away. And the British explorers, they had a white patch on the map. Nobody had explored that place on the map of Gobi. That place is generally called the Gobi Desert. And uh, the Chinese call it something like the Tian Shen or Tian Lin, something, mountains. Uh, anyway, I don't have time to go there. You'll, you'll understand that these references exist pretty clear and that there were landmarks and the forbidden area. Gurdjieff, the famous Gurdjieff. Now we are talking about 1910 or something like this. Yeah, Gurdjieff, as you know, explored for lost spiritual knowledge. And he found this lost spiritual knowledge first in Egypt, then going east, Samarkand and Tashkent, those lost cities, faraway cities in some of the ex-Soviet republics, which now are independent and so on, and far, far in Central Asia. And eventually Gurdjieff, by his descriptions, he found the supreme school of mysteries which he was looking for somewhere in today's Afghanistan. Some monastery, some Sufi monastery, some God-forgotten place, somewhere far, far in the mountains, on the border with Gobi and this. And after Gurdjieff spent a few years there and he learned his stuff, then he heard something even more formidable. These people told them that they are on the outskirts of Shambhala and that they are the grand masters of the world to which they, this monastery, they are small babies, no? and that uh, they can intercede for him, they can see that he is committed and spiritual and a real seeker, and they might ask for permission for him to be allowed to go there. <coughs> and he went, and he claims that he had been to Shambhala. He doesn't give any clear description of what he has seen in Shambhala, and he says that from Shambhala he walked south, and he reached to Lhasa, where he spent some time in Tibet. So even Gurdjieff claims that he had direct physical contact with Shambhala, and another person from his group, there were a group of about 16 people, and another person, and all of them were allowed to go to Shambhala, and 14 of them stayed in Shambhala, and two, he and another guy, came out of Shambhala. I won't tell you who is the other guy, it will be your shocking pleasure to discover if that's a known name, or who Gurdjieff said the other person was. A uh, Russian painter, very inspired by these stories of Belovodie and others. Uh, there is a guy called um, Ferdinand Osendowski, Polish. He was the ambassador of Poland in White Russia. And when the communists hit, he could not escape west. So the only way for him was to take the Trans-Siberian or whatever was in that day, reach to Mongolia and walk down to Tibet, and from Tibet cross to India, and then he was repatriated by the British from India. Ferdinand Osendowski actually did this trip, and when he passed through Gobi, across Gobi, he saw lights, he saw flying objects, and the local people told him the stories about Shambhala. And they told, he said, what's, what's there? And he said, don't go there, that's Shambhala. Shambhala is there. And so like everybody knew, even the peasants in that area knew 
but it was a very, very... Uh, so this guy, there is a Russian painter called Nicholas Royerich. Nicholas Royerich was fascinated by these stories when he heard about it, and he went and spent a lot of time in Ladakh, in Leh, in Lhasa, in Tibet, and he managed to find a few things. And Nicholas Royerich wrote a book, which is called Shambhala. That book has about 30 chapters, and only the first two and a half chapters talk about Shambhala. So the book is called Abusively Shambhala, because it talks about a thousand and one crazy things, and very little in that book is actually about Shambhala. Those two chapters and a half, we were reading them at the Shambhala meditation for people, so people can see what was written about it. Unfortunately, this Nicholas Royerich was uh, a bit of a crazy artist, a painter, and he was not very scientific or engineering, and he got all his papers taken over by his son, and his son really screwed up afterwards. He started writing all sorts of exaggerated and phantasmagoric things, destroying the little good work which Nicholas Royerich had done about it, and that's why many people are like, Royerich is a space cake. Actually, his son made him sound like a space cake. Actually, Royerich was a half-decent fellow. He made some interesting discoveries. Of course, we should not forget to mention the whole of Tibetan culture. Tibetan culture, not only that it has mandalas, yantras, tankas about Shambhala, but they had direct physical contact. The Panchen Lama, Panchen Lama is a very controversial character, uh, because uh, the Panchen Lama is under Chinese influence. Dalai Lama escaped to Tibet, to India, and Panchen Lama stayed in Tibet. And now there was a young boy, he must be 25 years old, and this young boy is uh, groomed by the Chinese. But the Panchen Lama is like the Dalai Lama, it's a hereditary function, it's like it's the 15th Panchen Lama. The 15th, the Panchen Lama in history, like even 100 years ago, they were signing visas, for Shambhala. Like if you wanted to go to Shambhala, you had to go personally to Panchen Lama in Tashi Lumpo or wherever that monastery was. There was a monastery west of Lhasa and you had to apply to Panchen Lama and to tell him why you want to go to Shambhala. And if Panchen Lama gave you a permit, then Shambhala didn't stop you. But if you went without a permit, you'd never make it you'd somehow be turned away and deviated. So remember there existed even a visa. A hundred years ago there existed a visa for Shambhala and one of the important lamas around Panchen Lama called Tashi Lama, another Tulku Lama, wrote a book which is called The Way to Shambhala, describing how to get to Shambhala from Lhasa. It's a descriptive book. It has been translated in German by a Tibetanologist called Grünwedel. I cannot read German very well, and that's why I never read this book. It's never been translated in English or French. So those of you who are of German language, if you dig deep, it's a very rare old book, you might find Grünwedel's book, which is called Der Weg or Das Weg to Tsushambhala. And the Tibetans... The Dalai Lamas had annual contact with Shambhala. Two people from Shambhala came on horseback from north to the palace of Dalai Lama. They, they had a special guest room which was used only by them two, three days per year. They spoke with Dalai Lama. They rested. Then they got back on horseback. They went back north. 
shipment disappeared in the middle of nowhere, they turned back to Shambhala. These people have been observed every year. Like they have been diplomatic representatives in, in Lhasa who saw them every year. They knew that around May, June, these two people from Shambhala, not the same every year. There is a photo in a very rare book. What was it called? What was it called? It's a book, it's a photographic book about Tibet. It's something which has the name Tibet in it. It's written by a member of the former government of Tibet before the Chinese time called Lobsang di Lalungpa. And uh, I think I even have the book in the library somewhere. And in that book, there is a photo where he mentions some mysterious people coming from the north, which are supposed to come from Shambhala or from that area. And I've seen many weird things in my life. That photo is one of the most odd things that I have seen in my life. Even the way those people look. Like I've never seen any human being looking like those before. So there are many things. The Tibetan tradition was full of this. For them it was like perfectly known that Shambhala had left books in their safeguard and Shambhala had some laboratories or whatever and that there were underground tunnels and they could leave their gold in the care of Shambhala and all that and that two people were coming and talking to Dalai Lama about what Shambhala needs to do next year and what's the situation of Tibet and all that stuff and so on. The Tibetans as a result of this in the 14th, 15th century, they already had invented a whole yoga for the lamas and yogis who are interested to connect with Shambhala. First, to connect devotionally, energetically, through the chakras, telepathically, and then if things go well, perhaps even to get to be connected physically with Shambhala. That method of connecting with Shambhala is called Kala Chakra, and the Dalai Lama gave annually one or two initiations in Kala Chakra for the last 30 years. Very few people know that a part of the Kala Chakra initiation is actually about Shambhala. That Kala Chakra contains a form of yoga, a method of meditation about how to connect to Shambhala. Actually more precise than that. You connect directly with the king of the world from Shambhala. Yeah? Kala Chakra... The, there is a famous mantra which comes together with it, the ten-syllable mantra, which is the mantra which is used for connecting with the king of the world. So in Kala Chakra, there is a preparation, quite laborious preparation. One of our teachers in the school has just finished it, is about to just finish it this week. So it's a preparation stage. And then after that preparation stage, by using the yantra, by using tankas, by using visualization, by using a special mantra, and by using other methods, such as the yoga of the lucid dreaming, the nidra yoga, and other such methods, people were attempting to connect with Shambhala. Basically, they were knocking at the door of Shambhala, even by yoga. In modern times right now, you saw we play some music, the music which was played here is the music which we used for meditation when we did Shambhala meditations. It's music which was selected many, many years ago, uh, part of it by Sahajananda, part of it by myself, and which is music which attunes to Ajna Chakra and Shambhala. And there are a few other technologies. René Genon, whom I mentioned a few weeks ago, 
the famous Rene Gyanon claims that the mantra Aum, which is the key mantra of Ajna Chakra, also puts you in touch with Shambhala. So by working with the mantra Aum alone, Laya Yoga with the mantra Aum, for those of you who understand what I say, it can connect you to Shambhala. Uh, remember that a swastika, especially a golden swastika, is also a good symbol for Shambhala, and therefore doing Trataka on a swastika is connecting with Shambhala. And there are a few other things. So music, symbols, geometrical symbols, Yantra, Mantra, simply repeating the name of the king of the world, if, if you still remember it, the king of the world has a name, and repeating it like a mantra, like simply calling upon the king of the world by the name. And a few other things, they are methods which are traditionally used, and in Agama, our advanced students, especially those who are very interested in Shambhala, is they are performing it. And, again, therefore, this is the end of this lecture. Like, there are many disturbing historical evidences, more than you would like to know. I gave you quickly, quickly a list. And you can read, you can do your homework and read, and kind of like, oops, why didn't I learn this? Thomas Andrew, in the end, says a very, very weird story, that in the 1950s or something, uh, somebody apparently from Shambhala even appeared in a meeting of the Security Council of the United Nations during the height of the Cold War. And he simply told them. They didn't know how he got in because there were bodyguards and police and everything. And this guy just appeared calmly in the meeting of, in a high-level meeting of the United Nations where ambassadors were and something like this. And he told them, chill out this crap, you know, because like we are not going to take it for long. You know, like, practice some peace, practice some non-violence, practice some this, because then they said who you are and so on, and he gave very evasive answers, and then he disappeared. He just basically walked out the door, and this guy rang the bell for the police to come. Nobody found him. Nobody knew how he came in, how he came out, who he was, and there is an appendix where this story, which is taken from the United Nations records, you know, it's simply listed in one of the appendixes, is it a complete fabrication? Does somebody want to double-check and go and see the archives of the United Nations? Or, you know, like these facts, very often, in this book and a couple of others, they sound so incredible that you can only shake your head and simply say, God, if this is true, I have to assassinate somebody. You know, it's like, how can a thing like this be kept from the knowledge of the public? You know, it's like, it's almost like an incredible stunt that all these things are there, and, every, and yet everybody is silent about it, and everybody doesn't know. It's so much facts. You know, you would expect that this thing is much more discreet, and it is discreet, but not beyond a certain point. And that's why, what do the yogis do? Kala chakra, basically, is a method which is called contact, you know, getting in telepathic contact with Shambhala, and if you manage to do enough of it, when you die, your soul, instead of going where your grandmother is in some astral world, your soul to go to Shambhala. That you are pre-selected for Shambhala, even before you die. And then when you die, Shambhala takes you. Because you have kind of given, you have shown sympathy. 
you have shown to Shambhala, I am with you guys. I, I want to become one of you. And yes, I know, I have to open my third eye. I have to open my crown chakra. And yes, I'm going to work hard for this. But even if I don't manage to open my Ajna chakra and my third eye enough to become enlightened and to become part of Shambhala, still I can be taken as a junior, as on probation, you know. You can tell me like the last person in Shambhala. I'm the lowliest person, but please take me with you guys to be one of you. And this is Kala Chakra and all the other methods which are used with a view to this. So, in Agama, uh, because I think that this subject is very meaningful, and I think for some of you it can become very present in your lives, no, the seventh plane and Sahasrara. Maybe you reach it in this life, maybe you don't. I wish, I give you the blessing that all of you should reach it in this life. No, I hope you will. I hope you are spiritually motivated enough to work, to do, to try, and to open your crown chakra. And that's why I am here. I am here to assist you in this project. But for some of you, besides your own spiritual work, there can be this collateral factor to it. Not only that you are interested in your spiritual thing, but you are also interested in some karma yoga. Like you want to do something with Shambhala. You heard about Shambhala and you are very sympathetic about this project, about this thing. Then, many people in Agama, they, in parallel, they also work a little bit for Shambhala. Some are very passionate, very fond of it, and they try more. Some do it five times per year when they remember a little bit here, a little bit there. Oh, oh yeah, it is Shambhala meditation. Okay, let's do a Shambhala meditation. You know, so some people are very hot, some people not so much hot on it. But this subject does exist in Agama. And as Agama is a yoga school, we don't just give you a series of four satsangs where we speak uh, abstractly about it. There are methods. A weekly meditation reading from the text and seeing that this is less and less bullshit. The more you read, the less and less it sounds like bullshit because you see that there is too much evidence about all this stuff and too many traditions converge together about this stuff. And music meditation, yantra, mantras, Mantras, yantra, it's very, very powerful stuff. Like, it's already high. Like, what do you need more than mantra and yantra? And like, this is already high technicalities by which you can get concrete results. And that's why in Agama, not only that we mention this and we tell you, take heart, the Buddhas of the past are looking at you right now. They are watching you. You are not alone. The great spirits of the past have not disappeared. They just are hiding themselves, not to disturb the others. So they exist somewhere in a very discreet way. And if you knock at their door, they might stretch out a hand towards you and greet you one way or another. So it's up to you to decide if the subject is important for you and if you are willing to do some experiments to see if this story is just a fairy tale or if this story really exists and something actually happens. When I was young, I was very thrilled to hear about Shambhala, and I did lots of experiments in my primary, in my early years of yoga, 
I did lots of experiments of Shambhala. Some of them were crowned with success and therefore I can say that this story with Shambhala is a very, very big story for people's lives and for people's spiritual practice. And uh, I have used four evenings in four satsangs to convey this story to you. Uh, I'm probably the most satisfied that I have been in the last 10 years. Like doing it in four satsangs almost satisfies me, although I didn't tell you any of the historical evidence. Like the, the series is incomplete. But remember that that thing exists in books. You can have the bibliography. Our library usually gives access to people to all these things. So ultimately it's up to you if you want to study, to research, to do more. And if you are going to hammer it on your teachers, they are going to speak with the management of the school and the Shambhala meditations will come again to life. For us it's a pleasure to do them, but we just don't want to do them aimlessly when people are not interested. Just some teacher is alone with the Yantra of Shambhala that he can do at home in his own house. He doesn't need to come to the campus and do a meditation when people are actually probably or might not be interested in it. So there is way to go. This is a practical story and there is stuff which you can practice and there are results which you can get and it's up to your heart to know if maybe somebody says, come on, I'm dying to find myself a tantric partner. Next week there are tantra workshops. I want to go to the tantra workshops and work on <coughs> sacred sexuality. Sure. I'm, it's not a blame on it, you know, that you say, for me, sacred sexuality now is more important than this story with Shambhala. I respect your point of view. Everybody has their own emergencies. Everybody has got their own priorities. And therefore, everybody is free to go for whatever they do. We started this lecture on Shambhala because we celebrated the Shambhala Easter two, three weeks ago. And then there was need to give some explanations about what is this whole story about Shambhala. And when these four satsangs will be uploaded on the YouTube channel of Agama, then you can download them, see them again, listen to them again and again, and draw the facts. And then maybe you get inspired to read the two, three, four, five good books which exist on this subject. And then, of course, even better, maybe you get inspired to start practicing something. Because when you practice, that's when the results appear. So, uh, this concludes my uh, initiative of talking to the school and through the school to the spiritual world about Shambhala. And uh, more, the ball is in your court, so to speak. And... Uh, manifest your interest for this subject in ways which are appropriate for you. With this we finish for tonight. Thank you for having had patience. Again, if some of you lost some of the previous satsangs, then go and find them. Ask Adinat or somebody if they have uploaded them or yet or not. They will be sooner or later uploaded and then at least in audio format because video there is not much to see, it's just a big orange guy talking and talking and talking, so you can put just a photo. Important is the message, because I'm not dancing and doing mudras on the stage here or something, so it's not much to see. That's why even audio, you are getting 99% of the message. So 
go and get it, read, get instructed, and then start reading and researching on this fascinating subject. I don't know how it is for others, but for me and for a few other people as well, the subject of Shambhala is very, very fascinating because it's so human, it's so provocative. It's people like you and I who had contact with Shambhala, who are working together with Shambhala. Therefore, this is very fascinating. Again, we have concluded for tonight. See you in the next satsangs.